Welcome to the Watering Hole Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Riemann. The Watering Hole is a place to come and quench your thirst for meaning, nourish your hunger for inspiration, and feed your need for connection. Featuring inspirational talks, curious conversations, mystical meditations, and other artistic expressions, exploring themes on life, spirituality, nature, mystery, and so much more. So meet me at the watering hole, and together, let's drink from deep waters. My partner in conversation today is Trebby Johnson. Trebby is the author of Radical Joy for Hard Times, Finding Meaning and Making Beauty in Earth's Broken Places. The world is awaiting lover, desire, and the quest for the beloved, and 101 ways to make guerrilla beauty as well as many articles and essays that explore the human bond with nature. She is also the founder and director of the global community, Radical Joy for Hard Times, devoted to finding and making beauty in wounded places. Trebi speaks four languages, has camped alone in the Arctic wilderness, studied classical Indian dance, and worked as an artist model, a street sweeper in an English village, and is an award-winning multimedia producer. She lives in rural Northeastern Pennsylvania. I came to be introduced to Trebi over a year ago now through a series of synchronistic events, and I found in her a mentor and a friend whose presence has deeply impacted my life and continues to guide me into the depths of beauty, both in the world and in myself. Trebi, it is a joy and honor to have you as my guest for this first podcast at The Watering Hole. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Mary. All of our conversations are deep journeys into the unknown, so I wonder what this one will be like. I do too. It's part of the great mystery, and I, I just love it, and I love that we're willing, both of us, to dive in. Me too. So at your suggestion, I watched the documentary on YouTube called Living in the Time of Dying. It's a film that states clearly that climate change and catastrophe isn't something in the far off future, that it's something that's happening now. And it's something that we must face and feel and help each other through. One of the things it touches on is this idea that the stories we live by impact the way we live. And in a world so deeply entrenched in the Judeo-Christian story, which suggests that we were kicked out of the garden because of our sinful nature and relegated to this second-rate reality called earth, we've treated it as such, as something to be dominated, plundered, polluted, because after all, heaven awaits us somewhere else. To me, this points out in such a poignant way how and why so many of us live divided lives. We humans barely see ourselves as nature. Mm -hmm. But you live a different story. One of the things that strikes me about your work, and it's evident in both uh, The World is a Waiting Lover and Radical Joy for Hard Times, is that your relationship with earth is quite different. Your work reveals that you have a very intimate and even sensual relationship with earth. Describe how you awaken to that sense of connection 
and how it informs your understanding and experience of life? Well, I, I've always seen nature as alive. And when I was a little girl, I think like most kids, um, you know, the, the grass was alive and the flowers were alive and the stones had personalities and some flowers wanted to be picked and others didn't. And, um, <clears throat> and then um, as I got older, the adults started saying, well, you know, that's really just your imagination. And instead of going in my mind, uh, oh, okay, I've been wrong all this time. I thought, all right, I'm just weird because I know that's not true. And, um, but therefore I won't tell anybody. So that's how I lived for like 20, maybe 25 years, just keeping it a secret and thinking I'm weird. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered ways to, uh, to introduce this way of being in the natural world with other people. And, uh, and, and, and what I believe is that it's inherent in all of us. So mm -hmm. every time I do a program, and I've been, this has been the, my practice for 30 years almost, Every time I do any sort of program, whether it's an afternoon program or a two week program, part of the component is always to invite people to, to go into nature. And it could, be, it could be a park, it could be your own backyard, it could be great immense wilderness and pay attention to some sort of nature being that's calling you. And it could be a mountain, it could be a little pile of coyote poop, right? It could be anything and sit there and spend time with it and describe it out loud and say what your reactions are to being with it. And, and, and a relationship develops. And so what would happen? I'd see people trudge off to do this little exercise going like, that's not gonna work for me. That's only some people can do this. And then they come back and I say, who has a story they'd like to share? And some people would say, nothing happened. And I always say, Something always happens when you go into nature because you're bringing you and nature's bringing it and you're both in constant flux and then the stories would emerge. Everyone knows how to do this. And the more, the more we practice, the more alive and intimate and informative and fun and funny and humorous and adventurous it becomes. So it's just been part of my life forever. I love that. I love the idea that it's innate because, you know, maybe one of my biggest doubts these days is in it, is it innate? Is this, is this relationship that we have with nature, something that, that we have to be taught that we're not teaching anymore? You know, is, is there a reverence that we can contact just because we ourselves are part of this unfolding reality? And if so, how can we foster that, you know, because I think it does change how we interact, not only with the world, but how we see ourselves in it and part of it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think I wrote about, it, I think in the world is a waiting lover is it's one of a small and simple way to get back in touch is just to notice what you're noticing, you know, instead of just like going sun setting, like, how is the sun setting? What are the colors in the sky? Mm. Spend like one minute with it. Right. Or if you're, if you pass this, there was a wonderful story that somebody told me once about she would jog in the city park every day and she'd go, it was a circle and she'd pass this rose bush every single day. And then one day it dawned on her that she, maybe she ought to stop and smell the roses. So, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing you stop for once, five seconds and smell the roses. And it, it kind of activates this, it reactivates the relationship that I believe is genetic because all of our ancestors were in touch with uh, 
with the with the beauty and the sacredness of the earth. Well, right, and we share so much of our genetic makeup with the rest of the world, you know, with the rest of creation. So to me, that's a beautiful way of talking about our kinship. Right. So, so what's it been like for you? I mean, it, did you rediscover that kinship or? You know, I, I like you as a kid, I was outside a lot. Um, and I loved being outside in nature. I love, I love the smell of earth. I love, you know, there's certain smells that take me back to, to memories immediately. Um, and we don't often talk about the beauty of smell in some ways, but it, it can be such a registering event in one's life. So I think I did have it as a child. And then I think I kind of unlearned it. I kind of got away from it and got into, you know, pursuing school and education and, and I got away from it, but it was something I kind of always sought out. You know, I had a favorite tree in my backyard and it was kind of a half dead tree. And, but it was a tree that I could climb because it was short enough and had a knob just on the side that I could place my foot on enough to get up into it. And I could sit there for hours and hours and really just commune, really just be with the tree. I felt like I was part of the tree, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I think I did get away from it. And then I came back to it. I, I in my undergrad years, I worked out in Rocky Mountain. And there's something about changing venues, you know, that sort of awakens you or uh, enlivens you again. You start to see again in the way that you're talking about. You start to look again for beauty in ways that you don't when you become familiar with a place, I think. And um, those experiences sort of reawakened me to my relationship with earth. But I think it's something that I kind of come in and out of like a dream, hmm. you know? And that's why I, I really treasure my relationship with you because it's, since we've been talking, it's much more consistent. It's something that I really do practice. It's something that I, I wake up to every day now and see it, you know, and sort of soak it in. Yeah. And that, that the, the beauty of the natural world is always with us. So I was, I recently was rereading a story in the book by Viktor Frankl, who was a, a doctor who was in Auschwitz. He was a prisoner in Auschwitz. And he would, he told the story of how one of the prisoners came dashing into their barracks one day, telling everybody they need to come outside and look at the beautiful sunset. Mm. Even in those kinds of circumstances, the beauty of the natural world has the power to just elevate us. And it doesn't change our circumstances, but it, it's like it, it lifts us out of that moment just long enough to say, there's something beyond me. There's something beyond my circumstances. Mm -hmm. it's, and and it's, it, it's beautiful and it's vast and it, it doesn't need me to keep going. And thank goodness for that. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank goodness for that. That's such a great story, right? Because that does, that does tell us that beauty can infiltrate any circumstance. I mean, any circumstance. And I mean, I do know that in my life. I've experienced that in my life where I've been in the pits of despair and yet I've experienced beauty even there, you know, not, not separate from it, but in the midst of it. 
Yeah, and I'll tell you a story about that. So, which is a very personal story. So my husband died in August. It was quite sudden. We knew he had cancer, but we had no idea it was that bad. He died in a really lovely little hospice facility. And, um, and like 45 minutes after he died, after I called his kids and a couple of my friends packed up our stuff, I went outside to get in the car and go home. And it was, it was about midnight and it was summer. And outside in the woods, it's like the entire air, all the trees were winged with the, winged and ringed with the sound of katydids. It was just amazing. It was like, this was, it was on a road. It wasn't even really in the country. And I just put my bags down and, and stood there for a minute and listened. Wow. Because it was, it was like what I was saying a minute ago, it was that sense that, that, that nature is alive and it persists and it has nothing to do with me. And in this moment, it has everything to do with me because it's like a promise that I can get through this. And no matter what's going on in my life, I can always, I can always re realize the experience of beauty. Wow. Absolutely. So before I picked up my bags again, I just put my hands together and I bowed to the Katie dids and thanked them. And then I went and got in my car. That's so beautiful. I find myself bowing all the time to nature now. You know, I, uh, my dad has a place in Hilton Head. So, you know, I get, I get to go there and, um, I find myself always bowing to the ocean, you know, bowing to the moon, bowing to the sand. And it is a way of, of reverencing the wisdom that does connect me to the rest of the world that does connect me to all that is and uh to me that's a very grounding practice actually yeah and you and what you've done is you've moved that thing of noticing into practice so you could just say wow i like this or this is beautiful this is grateful i mean this i'm grateful but 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 that act of of bowing is it's like it's like your whole body gets involved i was in um i was in israel about a year ago and went to the Wailing Wall. And when the, when the Jews pray, they rock back and forth like this. And one of our group asked the, uh, the rabbi why they do that. And he said, it's because they want their whole body to be involved in their prayer. So they go back and forth like that as they say their prayer. And bowing is, is kind of a version of that. It's like saying, I don't, this is beyond just thinking or even believing with my heart. It's putting my whole body into it. Absolutely. One of the, uh, back in the day when I was studying um, world religions, of course, I was looking into Islam and I fell in love with the Sufi tradition. And one of the things I love about it is, is Salat, you know, placing the third eye on the ground. Mm -hmm. And to wow. me, it is like meeting nature soul to soul, right? Like my third eye is on the ground and it's almost like my third eye meeting the earth's third eye. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, and I, I love that practice. I mean, you know, when I go on retreats by myself, <laughs> I am, I am practicing Salat in my, in my way, you know. That's beautiful. What's it, Salat, S-A-L-A-T, is that how to spell it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the practice of bowing and thanking Allah for all that is. That's beautiful. You know, you talk about that in a way in Radical Joy when you talk about the gaze. Yeah. 
befriending the gays. And I think that that's something that maybe we do have to teach. You know, maybe we do. We, 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 I think it's especially true, I think of Americans, you know, we tend to rush into a situation that's not quite the way we want it to. And immediately we want to know what's, you know, what, what can be done here? How can I fix this? How can people be mobilized to fix this? And so what we do with Radical Joy for Hard Times is we say, go to a wounded place. And, and part of the, the practice is you just sit and you look and you see what's there. You don't, you're, you're not judging. You're just letting it in, and maybe you maybe you have experiences of anger and grief and frustration and impatience and all of those things, but you're not like running in and trying to fix it and tidy it up or or um, or, or anything like that. You're simply letting it in and um, and absorbing, and um, which is what little children do so well. You know, they just they're un they just unabashedly look at something and they absorb it because it's fascinating, right? I think in so many ways, that's sort of our blind spot as a species is that we don't even know how to notice now, right? It's almost like we have such tunnel vision, you know, that we got to pay the bills. We got to go to work. We got to, you know, we come home, we're exhausted from most of us, most people, I think from having not meaningful work, you know, that apathy sets in and we don't even know how to see, right? Because we spend so much time in front of the screen or the TV or computer or what have you that that we forget that this world is alive you know that it actually has something to share with us you know and not just for our taking but for our witnessing for our honoring of it yeah. because it is us yeah you know us yeah i was reading recently that there's a book um the, the junior Oxford Dictionary, no, what is it called? The junior something dictionary. And um, it's a book that's put out to help kids get the vocabulary they need. And recent editions have excluded words like acorn, badger, um, dandelion, you know, marsh. And it's included things like, like blog, MP3, MP3 player, you know, internet. So it's, we're being, the kids are being told nature isn't important. These are the worlds you really need to know. Not even putting them side by side with, with acorn and, and marsh, but eliminating acorn and marsh as if they don't exist. I mean, that's, that's tragic to me. Like that's heartbreaking, right? Because that's part of, that's part of what sparks our curiosity is learning about about things. If you don't even have the opportunity to learn about an acorn, which frankly is like encapsulates the whole of life, right? Like it's the whole of life is in that acorn, right? It dies in the ground to bring forth another tree that drops thousands of acorns that seeds the earth, you know, with thousands more trees. Mm -hmm. And we're not even allowing questions or curiosity to engage a child to know that this this thing this acorn is first of all living and secondly it's something that we depend on and then thirdly it it encapsulates the whole story of life of living and dying and rebirth which is so essential to awakening to this living world 
it contains the future of a tree, you know? It's yeah. the little thing this big, it contains a tree. There's a tree in there and it's huge. There's more than one tree in there. Yeah. You know, you know, I think that's one of the, um, one of my favorite quotes out of Rad Joy. You say, um, when you spend any time at all paying attention to the proclivities of the natural world, you realize that nature has no problem, including in its sorority, the dead, dying, and ailing as fully as the lovely, healthy, and the whole. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's the acorn, right? It holds all those things within it. But that quote hit me um, really deeply because I started to notice then on my walks, and walking is one of my spiritual practices, how much death there is in the woods, say. I mean, it's not like there's just one tree down. There's lots of death, you know, layers and layers of dead trees, layers and layers of dead leaves, you know, and we walk over it all the time. We don't even think about it. And in a culture like ours, where we sort of don't even want to look at death, I think this is such an important part of of accepting it, mm -hmm. of coming to terms with it, of seeing that it's not something we have to avoid, but that it's something that is natural, right? I think we, we live in a culture that says death isn't natural, avoid it at all costs, you're gonna live forever or we're gonna find a way. And in many ways, I think that's part of what uh, sort of pollutes our own relationship with earth because we think, well, we'll find a way. Yeah, right. You know, and so I, I love that, that passage, but I also think it's a place where we humans really need to accept that, really need to see that for ourselves, that dying is, is as much a part of life as living as, you know, a blossoming as, you know, a ripening and that it's actually part of it. And, you know, I think, I think in my own life, I think we could all think about this in our own lives that certainly we've all been touched by death. But when I think about it in my own life, I don't think I've ever been made less by death. Mm, yeah. Wow. It's beautiful. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been made more because I've had to find yeah. something more in myself to confront it, to face it, to be with it. And to to go on yeah that's really that's really beautiful and i found that my husband died six months ago now and um and i used to think i wouldn't want to live without him and what i have discovered is i want desperately to live because grief can be so intense that you feel like it's trying to kill you right and um and i say you instead of me because i don't think it's particular to me um but but in the midst of that i'm going no I'm here and I want to stay here. I got things to do. You know, I got things. And, and you, you, I, you, you're, I'm more open to beauty. I'm more open to kindness and compassion, not only to receive it, but to give it. Um, it's, it is, and it, death is an extraordinary journey. And isn't it interesting also, going back to what you say about ignoring death, so many people don't want to say die. They want to say passed on or crossed over or, passed away like it's dying you know we have a good word for it and it's really short die d-a-d-i how would i just spell it d-i-e 
You know, we can use that. We don't need a euphemism for it. Oh, I could not agree more. I say that, in fact, I say that, in fact, because I think it's a way, you know, passing on or lost, you know, yeah. lost her, her husband. No, no, my mom is not lost. My mom is dead, yeah. you know? And I think that it's important to reckon with that, right? Because this idea of past or lost is, again, this, and I know it's tied to the mystery and who knows, but but it suggests that there's more time. It suggests that there's, you will see them again. And I don't know, maybe we will, maybe we won't, but none of us know. None of us have gone and come back and said, yes, it's a definite firm thing. <laughs> and one of the things I think that's so important about saying death and dead and dying is that it doesn't allow us to sidestep the, the finality of it. And when my mom died, it was the finality of it that I grappled with, mm -hmm. you know, the most, it, you know, that this is it. I'm never going to see her again. I'm never going to hear her voice again, you know? And, and yet it was that same grappling that made me wake up with such intensity day after day post her death because I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm, you know, first of all, I don't know when it's my time and everything dies. So I want to see it and savor it and taste it and experience it now, you know? Yeah. And it can be such an awakening event. Yes. Yes, it can. You know, it's hard. It's difficult, but it's, uh, if, if we're present for it, it can be such a teacher. And it Absolutely. takes guts to be present with it. It does. It does. I, you know, I'll share this story. I, I, when my mom, my mom died from esophageal cancer. And when she was diagnosed, I said to, you know, my girl, Amanda, I'm, I'm going to tie one on. I'm going to, I'm just going to tie one on. I'm going to, I'm just going to drink. I'm going to drink it, drink it away. And I tried that. No good. <laughs> Don't recommend it. <laughs> and, you know, the next day, probably not the next day, but the day after that, I was sitting with Amanda and we were talking and I said, you know what? I really want to be awake through this. Mm. I really want to be awake and I want to be present with my mom, you know, and drinking's not going to do it. <laughs> and, uh, and I was awake. I was really awake. And I was very much with my mom. I took time off of work and I spent as much time with her. She would allow me, you know, to be with her. Um, one of the things she would say is, I don't want you all coming home and just staring at me, <laughs> you know, and, um, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was, it was hard and there was anguish and sadness, but there was also healing and connection and profound love shared in that time. And yeah. I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. So let's talk a little bit about, about the wounded place. Okay. You know, I know that Radical Joy, the community just had an event in January to honor 
those who had died from coronavirus. And you've said in our conversations, you know, everywhere's a wounded place now. And I think that's also very true. I mean, everywhere is a wounded place, not just because of coronavirus, but because of what we've done to the planet. And I wonder how you, or would you be willing to share a story of how you yourself came to that realization and, and practice and why even you, you felt a need that, that radical joy community needed to have this day of global mourning? Well, the question is why we came to the Global Day of Mourning, not what, not, uh, not how we came to Red Joy. Oh, I kind of want to know about both. Well, it, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll still, I'll briefly answer the Red Joy part because I'd rather answer the other one <laughs> right okay, now. Um, the, the, the first part about Radicals Over Hard Times came when I did a video more than 30 years ago about an Oneida man named David Paulus. And he had received a National Science Foundation to recycle steel waste, a grant. And when I went to interview him, he talked about how he had had a realization the waste, that the waste was not an enemy to be conquered, it was an orphan that had gotten separated from the circle of life. And his job was to bring it back into the circle of life. And I was really, really touched by that. And it just, like that acorn, it just took root in me. And so I launched out on this, certainly not full-time search to figure out what does that mean? And, um, and, and so Radical Joy for Hard Times, our focus is going to hurt places. The kinds of places that when something happens to them, we tend to think that they have abandoned us. And so in response, we abandon them. And it could be, you know, it could be a clear cut forest. It could be a mountain whose top has been shorn off for coal mining. It could be a gas fracking land where there used to be a farm. You know, it could be all kinds of things. It could be, it could be the, the bushes in your own backyard that the honeybees don't come to anymore. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with these things? We might get mad, we might feel sad, but then we start like them, like they don't exist anymore. And so because I had this sense that everything is alive, I brought I wanted to bring attention and beauty to that and reconnect people with the broken places. And as we were just talking about with the idea that, that, not, that everything passes and that it still has meaning for us, even though it's not there in its present form. So that's what we do. And um, it's, it has, it's, it radical to its purpose is to have to do with the wounded places that are you know, like fit parts of nature in our community. But since the world is so hurting because of COVID, uh, we decided to have this global day of mourning. And just, it's kind of like the first step of radical joy for hard times. The first step for the practice is go to a wounded place and, and just go there. And so we were saying about coronavirus and the world, go to this wounded place, which is the fact that at the time of that, there were, I think 1.7 million people around the world had died. 300,000 people in the US. One month later, we have 200,000 more deaths in the US from that disease. But, um, so that's astonishing. Uh, but anyway, so we, we just felt like it was, that it was a good idea to, to pause and, uh, and say, what have we lost and how have we been coping? And let's just talk about it. So it was all online, of course, unless people did something with their family. Right. And it included discussion and an Iroquois ceremony from somebody who 
wonderfully enough, I had actually met for the first time when I went out to Anida to interview David Paulus 30 plus years ago. And, um, and, it, and then it concluded with a dance. So, uh, so that was our global day of mourning. And, it, and it, oh, this, so this is funny too, for, for, for like weeks before I, we actually did this, I kept thinking somebody needs to do a day of mourning. Somebody needs to do a day of mourning. And then uh, like two or three months after Andy, my husband died, I just went, well, why don't Radical Joy for Hard Times do it? We could do it. So we did it. Yeah, it's beautiful. I actually participated in, in uh, parts of it as I could, as I was able. And I, I think that, you know, one of the things that strikes me is really how grief, which requires that we face the reality of a situation can actually be a way in to beauty, you know, can actually be a way into discovering beauty. Definitely. You know, and uh, I mean, that's another, I think that's another place in our culture where we sort of lack, you know, we think grief is over in three days, you know, we require people get back to work immediately, you know, or soon after um, somebody they love has died. And I think that actually honoring grief, you know, is really part of what's needed in the, in this time. It's really part of the, part of our spiritual path in terms of how we awaken to what's actually happening, you know, around. Yeah, a, a wonderful book uh, by Francis Weller, who was one of the, he was the guest on our opening, one of the two guests, the other one was Dr. Marty Casey from St. Louis um, to, on the first part of our Global Day of Mourning program. And he's written a wonderful book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Which is he, he he talks and he leads workshops about about grief and about moving through it, and 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 that's the whole point of his work is that is that you you can't move beyond it unless you move through it. You can't sidestep it, and um and by being within it, my experience has been, and I've I've lost I've lost several really important people to me in my life ever since I was nineteen, and um and what I have found is that. It, it opens up such a new landscape. It's mm -hmm. like you're brand new. You don't know how to walk around. You don't know how to function. And so therefore you need brand new maps and friends and guides. And, and I mean, I can't tell you how many times in the last six months I've said, what does that mean? Who do I call next? You know, what, what I don't understand. Like it's, you're just a baby. Wow. Yeah. And it's so important. I mean, it's such an important, because you also now are being remade, right? And, and unless we allow ourselves to be made new, to be baby, right? Again, and admit it, right? Admit, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to, I don't know how to move through this, or I need help in X, Y, Z places. Then, then we actually miss our own opportunity to expand amidst it. Yeah, yeah. Like mm -hmm. keeping ourselves rigid and staying what we think is safe, yeah. Yeah. So I wanna take just a slight turn. Okay. Um, one of the concepts that you talk about in Radical Joy is lying beauty. Would you describe what that is for me? Yeah. Oh, yes. 
this this was a term I came up with. Um, I first noticed it in a big way. Um, I I was part of I was a, writing an article. I was, so I was part of a journalist. I was I mean I was the, a, the only journalist on a, as part of a group that of uh, African American ministers who went and did a toxic tour of four communities around New Orleans on the Mississippi River, mm. and um, one of them was this community where um, African American people had been given special grants from the government in order to build uh, houses and start a new community on this land. And so they did and they were excited. And the thing that was so heartbreaking was they had these beautiful names for their streets like Charity Street and Humanity Street. And you know, they were beautiful. And then they started moving in and, they, and people started getting sick. And when they would dig to try and plant flowers and trees, they would come up with all sorts of rubbish well, it turned out that this place had been used as a landfill for like 40 years. And they had and they had been given it as if it was a as if it was, you know, an opportunity. And um, so they were fighting like crazy to get recompense for it, which ultimately they did. But um, you know, but they never could get back their health or and, uh, and everything looked, when you drive in, it looked so nice. You know, there was grass and there were pretty red brick buildings and that's lying beauty. That, and another example of lying beauty is like in the, in the Pacific Northwest where they put these scrims of nice tree, they don't put them there, they're still left over there, tall trees to make you not know that there's clear cut just beyond. So it's, it's, it's beauty that, that is not, it's, it's a cover up beauty, you know? Yeah, and, um, that's the lying beauty. Yeah, I think we have an epidemic of lying beauty. Ah, say well, more about that. Well, it's not just it's not just kind of out there. It's like you know you think about sort of you know I guess I would call it fake beauty, right? Like we have um, we put so much emphasis on how a person looks, say for example, and maybe they do plastic surgery or whatever, but inside they're not kind, you know, or not nice. And where real, real beauty comes, you know, from within, or we think about, you know, there's truly an epidemic of pornography, global, global. Scientists have shown that now young men in their twenties are impotent because they've they're so um, taken by this lying beauty of oh pornography gosh. that they don't know how to be with a real person. Wow! Right, and it's 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 so sad, you know. It's so sad, and it's perpetuated at anywhere we turn. You know, this idea that beauty is material that beauty is yeah. well you know money that beauty is pornography new car yeah yeah white shoes you're a thousand pair of high heels right made under what conditions yeah you know like made under what conditions when there's the people making those things are living in atrocious oppressive conditions often you know and so I think that's that's another that's another place where I think we have to wake up to the reality of it, you know. So let's talk about that. What what's real beauty? Let, let's kind of play with what's what are characteristics of or qualities of authentic beauty? 
Wow, that's a great question. I don't know if I've ever thought about that, even though I've thought about Lyme beauty. I think it's maybe something that makes us want to do a double take, maybe. Mm. You know, like you glance and then you have to look back again. Yeah. Um, or you 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 fall into a, you you fall into a moment of gratitude. Yes. Or um, or you feel like gasping. You know. Yes. And what's what's beautiful to one person may not be beautiful to another. Although certainly things are shared. I mean, one thing that has always kind of touched me is that the United States Highway Department has these scenic overlooks all over the place. Yeah. It's like the United States Highway Department. I mean, come on, it's a government agency. It builds scenic overlooks <clears throat> so that people can look, go in, and stop and pull over their car and get out and look at mountains or valleys or seals basking on the beach. You know, that's quite wonderful. Right. There is like the, the government recognizes that we need beauty. Wow. That is kind of profound, right? <laughs> so good question. I mean, I'd like you to answer that question. What is authentic beauty? I, you know, I think, I think you're hitting on something. I think, you know, this authentic beauty is that which draws us sort of spontaneously to wonder and awe. You know, I think also probably, you know, my words might not be, you know, right, but it's like connected, right? Like sort of like John Muir says, said, you know, you can't pick out one thing by itself or you find it connected to everything else. It, it's that, it's not, it's not a beauty that takes place in isolation, right? It's connected to other things that have brought this beauty about that have made it possible. Yeah. Yeah, which brings me back to that that community in, in in New Orleans, is that the people who lived there, they had they were well they were so happy to welcome these ministers who were from all over the U.S. You know they was they were really hoping that the this visit was going to help them to present their case in a in a way that would get more attention so they could get the people to pay to help. And um, they created the most beautiful lunch. You know, there was fried chicken and mashed potatoes and biscuits and just this delicious lunch. That was the beauty there. You know, that was the authentic beauty was that generosity. Yes. That, that ability to step out of themselves and, and do this beautiful welcome for these people who were coming to them. Right. So it speaks to the, the relationship. Right. So I, that's, I guess what I think maybe authentic beauty is, is that it's, it's tied to, it's interrelational. It's tied to relationships and connection and, you know, those kind of, those kind of qualities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know in my own life that it's hard. I have days moments where I see something horrible, you know, that has been brought about by humans. And I will have just for a brief moment, oh my God, I hate humanity moments, you know, where I'm like, <laughs> we're such an ugly species sometimes. And so I wonder how you deal kind of with the fact of humanity's continued you know, plundering and polluting of earth and still maintain a love for humanity and a relationship with earth where beauty is central. 
Well, I live in gas fracking country right now. Mm. And I'll tell you, when they first arrived in 2008, I was so mad. I would, I would scream and shout at them. I, I got behind their trucks on the road. I would swear and shout and tailgate them. And you know, I was furious and upset. I would cry when I saw the gas flares. Um, so it's, uh, but I don't, I mean, I don't think I've ever just hated, I don't think I have a hatred for humanity. I get, I have a, I get, I get really, finally I had to accept that the gas fracking people were here. And I actually helped myself to kind of get to know it by um, going and sitting with a guy that I knew who had leased a bunch of his land to the gas fracking companies and just going and sitting on a hillside with him and watching the way they worked. It's like it just, it didn't make me love it anymore, but it helped me to just kind of like understand it maybe, and even appreciate the sort of how amazing the technology is if you come right down to it. Right. But um, but I actually think for me that that various various journeys into grief, um, especially that like my, my brother died very suddenly 10 years ago, um, journeys into grief like that have really, it's in an interesting way, they've helped me to appreciate humanity before because humanity makes all kinds of really stupid mistakes. And um, they certainly have in this country in the last few years. I mean, right. outrageous, infuriating, infuriating. Right. But you also read, and I look for examples of people who do incredibly generous things mm. in calamities to help people. I, the, there is somebody in my little village who has plowed my driveway twice during this snowy season. I have no idea who it is. They come in, they plow, they leave. I put in, I made an enormous sign that said, thank you kind neighbor for plowing my driveway and stuck it in a snowdrift. I love but, it. You know, that's just, that's just kindness. Right. They didn't even say like, Mr. So-and-so was here with his plow, just wanted you to know. They just did it and left. Right. That overrides a lot of the nasty negative stuff. And, you know, I live in a conservative community. This could have been a person who voted for the candidate that I sure didn't vote for. Right. But they were kind enough to plow my driveway. Right. I do think that's key. I do. I mean, even in my own moments of you know, wanting to separate myself. Cause for me, that's what it is. Right. When I have those moments of ugh, humanity, like, you know, when I think about how we're plasticizing the ocean, part of it is, is I, uh, it's blame. I want it to be someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that humanity. <laughs> yeah. Them over there. Yeah. Them over there. I, I'm not cool with them, but I do, I do think that that's key is to being awake and aware to, to acts of kindness. You know, I remember I had, I was with this one friend one day and she was complaining a lot of, a lot of complaining and we were driving, making a long drive together and we stopped at a gas station and she, you know, she was caught up in it, in the story of it. And I watch her, she walks into the gas station and somebody opens the door for her and I see her at the checkout and somebody let her go in line in front of them. And, you know, I see these kind of small acts of kindness. She comes back to the car and she starts in right away. And I was like, hold up, just hold up for a minute. You know, did you even see what happened? 
you know, did you even notice how somebody no. held the door for you, how somebody let you in line, you know, in front of them? And, and I do think we have to help each other reframe and, and really see that kindness is a beauty. And it is a beauty that can be found in all circumstances, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I've tested that, but, you know. Oh, I think so. I mean, I'll tell you another little story. So at, my brother died. He, um, he drowned in a river in Vermont during a flood. And, um, and I had several conversations with this policeman who gave me the news and who was also in Vermont. And, um, and when I went up there to deal with my brother's stuff, um, there was a crime scene thing over the door because they had wanted to make sure that he hadn't been killed or killed himself. And uh, so I called this policeman from my car and had a conversation with him. And at the end of this conversation, he thanked me for being so helpful and cooperative at such a hard time. And I thanked him for being so understanding and compassionate at such a So here's this guy who at that moment gave me the worst news I'd ever had in my entire life. I've wow. never even met him. And we're having this moment of like mutual respect and appreciation for each other. Wow. You, you just don't ever know. Right. That's part of the the mystery, right? Like that's part of the beauty of life and the mystery that we live in is that you don't ever know how it's going to show itself. Yeah. And like, so what I'm curious about is when you pointed out to your friend, how those people had been nice to her, did she switch gears or did she, did she pay attention to what you were saying or did she go right into back into the complaining? For a minute, <laughs> for a minute, she switched gears, but you know, it, 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 told me something, right? It told me something that we can get into those tracks, those ruts. I mean, that, that's a rut. That's a way of thinking. That's, you know, this person happens to live in a, in a world in her mind where those stories are fervent. They're the big know? stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that part of what we have to do today is, is question what stories we're telling ourselves. Yeah, that's good. You know, because first of all, Mo I don't know about you, but most of the stories I tell myself in my mind are not true. <laughs> you know, like I'm telling stories about, you know, whatever the guy who, who, you know, walked past me with a weird look on his face and I'm making all kinds of stories up that it's somehow about me. But the key is recognizing that first of all, I don't know. I don't know. And it's a story that I'm telling myself. You know, and if I can drop the story and even tell myself a different story, you know, a better story, then I can change tracks. You know? Yeah, that's really good. So, like, so your friend in, in that on that experience, the story she's telling herself is like people are so mean and I'm just a victim and people keep right. doing bad things to me. Whereas right. the story that you're witnessing about her is, well, wow, look how kind and generous strangers are to her. Yes. So it's totally different. Right. And, and, and we're in the same moment. Yeah. Yeah. Same experience. Yeah. It is. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So another uh, quote that I love from Radical Joy, you say, learning to live with wounded places is a mission threaded with finding and making beauty. If I'm open to the likelihood of it, 
I can always find beauty under any circumstances, whether it's a kindly gesture from a stranger or the first shoot of greenery shoving up through the waste of a calamitous event. Beauty is the antidote, you say, to grief and despair. And it's the one sure thing that I can bring to bear when I confront a place that has fallen on hard times. <clears throat> I mean, Trebby, that is, that is the call of humanity right now, I think right, to, to find and make beauty and to bring it to bear now, right, now, today, this moment, you know. So how do you keep that practice fresh for yourself? It's just ingrained. I mean, I just have to say it's just ingrained. It's, it's keeping that portal open, you know, mm. like, like being aware that of having that of, of having a conversation with a policeman who was kind it's just i think if 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 we if we keep that doorway open almost like their antenna like beauty mm. i can find and make beauty at any time this is this isn't just about me that's saying this this is true and you and you constantly like anytime there's any sort of a calamity in the world the news the news always talks about the people who step outside of their own grief and anxiety and they do something generous and kind and beautiful for other people. We need these stories because we need to remember that there is always an opportunity to find and make beauty. There is always an opportunity, no matter what's going on. You know, you can notice, you can notice a beautiful sunset when you're in Auschwitz. Right. You can, and there's, and there's always opportunities for making beauty. And, um, and, and, and like any kind of practice, the more this becomes regular, the more it, the more it happens because right. the doors get wider and wider and wider. Right. I would say that, you know, you, you said have, keep the portal open, you know, in many ways, in my experience of you, it's that portal is the heart. Hmm. right it's like keeping can we keep our hearts open even amidst tragedy even amidst trauma even amidst you know ugliness can we keep our hearts open and to me that's the way that we we can experience authentic beauty right the the relationships that sustain us in those times yeah you know definitely would you say that that practice is the practice of finding and making beauty anywhere, anytime? That is, is that what you call guerrilla beauty? Well, guerrilla beauty in my book, um, and I, I wrote this little book called 101 Ways to Make Guerrilla Beauty. And I have a chapter on it in Radical Joy for Hard Times. It's, it's, it, it's specifically, it relates to what the kind of beauty that we do with Radical Joy for Hard Times, which is to go to a place and create an act of, create a gift for this place. And in order to create this gift, we don't need to be an expert. We don't need to haul in a lot of supplies. You don't have to be spiritual. You don't have to mobilize people. You, you make beauty for the place out of what the place itself already has there. So sticks or stones or mud or rubbish, you know, you make beauty. And the message doing that is that all the beauty that any of us or any place needs in order to be beautiful is inherent. It's right there. It doesn't need outside influence or or, or money um, or mm -hmm. expertise. 
And that's the guerrilla beauty. So, you know, in the, the when we spoke about guerrilla warfare, especially in Latin America during the 80s, it was uh, groups of small bands that would rush into a place and do something like a quick skirmish, cause some damage and dash out again. They knew the land, they came in and they left. It wasn't a big organized deal. It wasn't official and it was quick. And so that's what we do. We go in and we make beauty. I love it. And, we, and then we leave and we're only the first artists. This is not about posterity and fame and signing our name and making it last forever because the wind and the sun and the animals are gonna take it away. So that specifically is gorilla beauty for a place. I love that. You know, one of my acts of gorilla beauty, if I can share, was, uh, you know, Dayton was hit by several tornadoes and obviously it took ton, tons of trees down. And uh, one of the trees that was down happens to be in, or one of the plots of land where the trees were down, happens to be uh, near a park that I walk in often. And I would go and visit this one tree that was down. It was still alive, like it, it still blossomed in the spring. And one of the things I loved about it, which frankly, I probably would not have paid attention to um, except for being prompted by your work, was that I did go and I would just sit with it and kind of just commune with it. And I realized that because the tree was on the ground, I could touch the branches that touched the heavens and oh. I could touch the roots that went, bore deep into the earth that I would never be able to do when it was upright. And so I took some of the branches that had broken off and I made a huge peace sign in the arms of two branches that were still connected to it. So it's like there's two branches and then I made this huge peace sign in the middle of it. And uh, I just, I fell in love with that tree. You know, yeah. I fell in love with that tree. Yeah. And I just love that it, it gave me the opportunity to touch the sky. Yeah, to touch the sky and to touch below the earth. Yeah. We don't get to do that. Right. I love that. Yeah. So I know that uh, in June you have, Rad Joy has the Global Earth Exchange. Tell us about that. Yeah, we, this will be our 12th Global Earth Exchange in a, in a row. We started it as a way to launch the organization in 2010. And it just was so, people loved it so much, we've done it every year. And it's a day, one day in June, when people go to a wounded place that they care about, and they do these simple steps. Um, you go there, you go, a lot of people go alone. Some people go with big groups, a lot of people go with small groups. Go to a wounded place, you, you get to know it as it is now, you share your stories, and then you make a gift of beauty for it. And then there are all kinds of variations of that, of course. It doesn't have to be done in any particular order. The important thing is to go in person and to make the gift. That's what really counts. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's been so amazing what's happened because uh, there have been global earth exchange. And then we put all the, we put all the pictures and stories. <clears throat> we ask people to tell us a story about what happened and send us a picture. And we put them on the website. And... Um, We've had scientists in Antarctica wow. doing something about glaciers and not like scientists don't do spiritual stuff. They like took a picture of this is me in front of my glacier and it's melting, it's retreating like blank number of yards wow. a week. 
Um, we've had we've had farmers in Bali doing things because the the rains are so bad it's knocking the blossoms off the clove trees. We've had um, a group in Johannesburg doing it for the birds, the migrating birds. Uh, it, you know, people go to super fun sites and and old neighborhoods that are being torn down and places where there's been violence. It's and, um, and it's a way of getting to know these places with other people. And, you know, you were talking about falling in love with that tree. A lot of times people will say, I went to this place because my friend invited me and I thought it was kind of going to be a dumb idea and it was going to be depressing, but I ended up falling in love with the place. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people say that. You, there's something about this act of getting to know a place and then giving something back to a place that has given so much to us. Yeah. to humans, to animals, to the water, to the plants, to give back. It's, it's like saying, I'm okay, A, I'm not powerless after all. B, I'm braver than I thought because I can go and face this and not fall apart. C, I, can, I see that, that death and destruction, there's beauty there. I discover all kinds of beauty. And D, and perhaps most important of all, I am not powerless. Yeah. I don't have to go and get a graduate degree or, or raise a million dollars in order to make a difference on the earth. And so it, what I really, I mean, I love that movie you brought up in the beginning about living in a well in a time of dying. But what nobody talked about in that is you can do something right now. Right. And you can sure you can go and drive less and not buy anything from China, but you can also find and make beauty wherever you are. And that is, that is the antidote to despair. I agree 100%. You know, I think that's one of the things that that is hard is is overcoming that feeling of helplessness and actually being with a place in the manner that you speak of is so empowering. I mean, I've discovered that myself. It's so empowering because it does exactly, you know, it do, it does take an orphan place and bring it back into the circle of one's own life. Yeah. You know, and, and that makes me expand, right? Because now I realize that that place is still part of me. Yes. And I'm, and I can, I can make a difference. Right, right here and right now. So it's going to be June, June 12th this year, Saturday, June 12th. And as a matter of fact, we're having a meeting today to talk about like, is there going to be a theme and it had to be slightly different last year actually a lot different last year because we were in the middle of the pandemic right. but it's um so how are we going to run it this year so there will be there will be details on our website which is radicaljoy.org very soon okay awesome great well as we bring our time to a close i want to pose one final question to you you know this world is so full of mystery there's so much mystery in the world. What mystery do you wish you knew the answer to? Oh, gosh. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> there may be a long, long pause here. Yeah. I'll tell you, I, I have, I have called also, I'm going to be perfectly honest here. For many years, I have called myself a mystical atheist because I do not believe in a supreme being, but I, um, but, but I do believe in mystery and, and transcendence and life. 
But I'll tell you, a lot of times when I can't sleep in the middle of the night, I'm lying there trying to find God. Like, it, does God exist? Wow. Is there a God? I would, that's, that would be the mystery. I would love to know if there's a God. I love it. <laughs> love it. That's great. That's great. Well, this has been an absolute delight and an absolute joy. I can't thank you enough for meeting me here at the watering hole. Thank you, Trevi. Thank you, Mary. It was wonderful, wonderful conversation. Indeed. Thanks for listening, everybody. I look forward to meeting you right back here at the watering hole. And as Mary Oliver said, go easy, be filled with light, and shine.